Big issues, big names. An interview every month. It's not that simple. A podcast from Fundação Francisco Manuel dos Santos. Hello and welcome. We have kicked off another episode of It's Not That Simple. And by now, you know what to expect. Engaging and dynamic conversations with some of the worldwide leading experts on a variety of important topics of uh, our contemporary life. Today, we are delighted to welcome one of the world's leading authorities when it comes to the impact of technology on business and society. He is currently the co-founder and executive chairman of the Blockchain Research Institute, an adjunct professor at INSEAD, recently a two-term chancellor of Trent University in Ontario and member of the Order of Canada as well. He's also published 16 books. I'm pleased to be uh, uh, interviewing today, to be speaking with Don Tapscott, who's joining us from, from Canada. Don, so much to talk about. We're going to talk about everything digital, well, any, everything that matters anyway. And, and to, to kind of set the landscape, I've seen a lot of the events that you've spoken at, a lot of the interviews you've given, and you speak about the second era of the digital age. And I think it'd be great for our audience if you can define what that is to get us going. Uh, sure. Well, and uh, again, it's great to be here, uh, Pedro Munto Brigado. Very good. Uh, Impressive. <laughs> well, as you know, my wife is Portuguese, so uh, I'm quite familiar with the country and the food and the culture and the people and so on. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, just flashback. And uh, I wrote a couple of books in the 1980s that nobody read. I think my mother <laughs> bought most of the copies. But in... Um, in 94, I finally wrote a, a bestseller, and that was uh, The Digital Economy. And it was the first big book about the web. And um, I had to, uh, 20 years later, I had to write the anniversary edition. And I had to think about where have we come from and where have we been? And it occurred to me that we've, we've really entered a second era of the digital age today. That uh, for 40 years, we had mainframes, mini computers, PCs, the internet. Um, the cloud, uh, social media, uh, big data, the mobile web, and so on. And now we have this new generation of technology that is very different. We have uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning, and of course, chat, GPT, and other tools like that are on everybody's mind. Uh, we have uh, the rise of the Internet of Things, billions and trillions of inert objects, that become smart communicating devices. Um, and they're not just communicating, they'll be doing transactions. Light bulbs will be buying power from distributed power sources. Um, we have autonomous vehicles and mm -hmm. drones, robots and technology in our bodies. And I also uh, came to the conclusion that the foundational technology for all of that would be blockchain or the underlying technology of, uh, of cryptocurrencies. And um, these technologies are starting to really explode uh, onto the scene today. Um, you know, you think about chat GPT and everybody's uh, talking about that. AI is moving from a tool to analyze data and make predictions and so on to generative AI where, where AIs can generate new content, new material, new ideas, new writing, new video, new yep. photos. Yeah, I've seen, yeah. I've seen examples. Yeah, yeah. 
And, um, you know, the metaverse is not um, is not such a big deal unless you're a gamer today, but, but it's coming on very, very strong. I mean, Citibank estimates that it uh, will be $14 trillion by the end of this decade. That's approaching the size of the GDP of China. So everyone's paying attention to this and trying to get ready for it. And then blockchain, to me, um, this is a, a, not just an interesting new technology. It's really a, a second era of the internet as well. We'll get into that, of course, in, in more detail. But uh, before we do, I also wanted you to, to give us your perspective of how this second era is affecting our day-to-day -day lives. And, and, and as someone who has a young daughter as well, it's particularly interesting to try to predict what her life will be like as blockchain continues to develop, Web3, you mentioned the metaverse, you mentioned AI, so how, how are these tools uh, uh, affecting us on a day-to-day -day basis? Well, the first era tools have affected us profoundly. Um, in some ways for the better. I mean, I'm now a grandparent. I can communicate with my grandchildren uh, when I'm traveling around the world, but um, with video. Um, but there've been lots of problems as well. And we can certainly talk about those. The internet has, has led to big economic uh, dislocations in society. There's a fragmentation of public discourse. It's undermining uh, the nature of democracy and, and lots of other problems as well. I think that this technology has an enormous potential, um, but it also has a huge dark side as well. And the potential is to augment human intellect. You know, I haven't talked about this for a long time, decades mm -hmm. really, but one of the first people I met many years ago was actually in the 1980s when I was trying to figure all this out. It was a guy named Douglas Engelbart. And he was at Stanford Research Institute. In 1964, he wrote a paper called Augmenting Human Intellect, a New Conceptual Framework. And back then, computers were used for data processing with punch cards. Mm -hmm. and, and he said, no, we're going to have these screens and everybody's going to use these screens. He invented word processing. He invented the mouse. He invented hypertext. He invented windows and so on. And um, that vision has turned out to be uh, uh, a vision that's very, very powerful, but also there's a real dark side to, uh, to this whole thing as well. All right. Well, as we, as we get into the, the opportunities and, and the challenges of, of, of this new era, let's, let's first uh, help people understand exactly what blockchain is. And, and why it's not that simple many times for the common person to get it right away. Yeah, it's actually a simple idea. Um, let me explain it this way. For 40 years, we've had an internet of information. But if I send you um, some, uh, some information, Pedro, you know, uh, uh, a PDF, a photograph, mm -hmm. email, whatever, I'm actually not sending you the information, I'm sending you a copy. And the internet has been a big medium for publishing, communicating information, and that's great. But um, when it comes to things that really matter in our economy and in society, beyond just commonly available information, that is assets, things of value. When it comes to th things like that, money, 
um, stocks, bonds, securities, uh, intellectual property, the data in our identities, um, uh, cultural assets like art or music or vote, votes an asset, something of value that belongs to somebody. When it comes to those things, copying them is not a good idea. You don't want someone copying your vote um, or your identity. Mm-hmm. And if I send you, you know, a thousand euros, it's really important that I don't still have the money, right? So uh, computer scientists called this the double spend problem for decades. And uh, the way that we manage this problem in our economy is through intermediaries like banks, uh, credit card companies, um, uh, stock markets, various kinds of um, exchanges and escrow agents and so on, sometimes governments, now even big um, uh, tech companies, social media and so on. And they perform all of the business and transaction logic for every type of commerce. They identify the asset. You know, they identify who you are, your Pedro, that's a euro. They clear and settle transactions. They keep records. And overall, they've done a good job. But there are lots of growing problems. And, uh, you know, I've talked about these extensively. I won't mm-hmm. go into them. You know, they they exclude a billion and a half people from the global economy. They slow things down. They charge too much. I mean, why does it, why does it cost, you know, uh, uh, 12% and take four to seven days from a physician in Toronto to send money to her mom in the Algarve or in, uh, you know, Porto. So, um, and the biggest problem is that they capture all of our data that we create and that's undermining our privacy and other things. So what if there were not just an internet of information? What if there were an internet of value? Some kind of vast global distributed ledger or anything of value from money to to music, to a vote, could be managed, stored, transacted um, securely and privately. Well, that's what um, that's what Satoshi Nakamoto did, um, Nakamoto did. He cracked the double spend problem in 2008, and he invented Bitcoin. Now, Bitcoin was just the beginning, of course, but it's an extraordinary beginning because for the first time ever, people could communicate, manage, transact, uh, with a form of money peer-to-peer. And trust was not achieved by an intermediary. It's achieved by cryptography and some clever code. So that, in a word, that's what all this represents, blockchain. It's an internet of value where we can manage, store, communicate, transact with things of value, assets. And I've been at this, you know, Pedro, for 40 years or more. This is the biggest one I've seen. Well, I, I, I appreciate you sharing uh, uh, the definition of blockchain, a little bit of the history of it as well, to kind of be able to delve deeper now into this into this topic. Because in your view, as we look at the good, the bad, and the ugly of, of blockchain, and starting with the potential for a force for good in our in our society and Web three, uh, of course, uh, what what would you focus your 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 attention on? what it can contribute in a positive way to society, to economy, to politics, et cetera. Well, uh, first of all, you threw out the word Web3, so let's just kind of- I did, I kind of did, you're right. Let's define that. (laughs) I kind of sneaked it in there, you're right. Web3 and blockchain are roughly the same idea. Although when people talk about Web3, they talk more about some of these technologies of the second era, like the metaverse and- Mm -hmm. AI and so on. But the first web, you remember the first time you used the web, 
it was a platform for the presentation of content. You went to websites, you got content. Um, the second web started in the early 2000s was a platform for collaboration. You couldn't just read the web, you could write to the web to use computer science lingo. You could go onto Wikipedia and make an entry. You could you know, create a group in Facebook, whatever. Blogs, the vlogs, problem, et cetera, right? Yeah, exactly. But the problem with both one and two was that you created all this data, but, and this value, you created all these assets, but it was owned by others, by intermediaries. Um, Web3, enabled by blockchain, is this new platform where we're going to get to to create uh, create value, but also to retain that value, to monetize it, to use it to plan our lives, to protect our privacy, and and so on. And this creates a whole new uh, platform globally for prosperity and for really for freedom, because privacy is the foundation of freedom. So I'm very excited about you know Web three and and blockchain together. They've taken a while to to get going, but we're at a tipping point right now. Definitely. Now you asked, you asked, how can this contribute? Yeah, that, that's what, that, 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 that's that's yeah. what I was going okay. to follow up with. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, um, little aside there. So, um, well, first of all, let, let's talk about the ownership of data. So, the virtual Pedro is this mirror image of you that gets created online as you go through life, and it probably knows more about you than you do because you can't remember what you your exact location a year ago or what you said or what you bought or what uh, transactions you did or what medication you had or what diagnosis yep. you had. And, um, but the virtual you is data, the asset class of the digital age. You create it, we all create it, but it gets expropriated, kind of like digital feudalism, you know, under the old feudal uh, system in crossing Europe. You were tied to the land, you grew some produce, the landlord took most of it, and you got to keep a few cabbages. Well, you're left uh, with a few digital cabbages here today. And that that's a big problem in a lot of ways. Uh, it means that you can't use this data to plan your life, you can't monetize it. A guy named Jared Lanier estimated there are a billion and a half people in the world who could double their income if they could monetize their data. This data is not secure, it's on central servers, and there are two kinds of those, those that have been hacked and those that will be hacked. And our privacy is being undermined. And people say to me, well, Don, privacy's dead, get over it, you know? Uh, if you got nothing to hide, what's your problem? Well, I think this is foolishness. Privacy is the foundation of freedom. And all this data represents our identity. So we need to, to get our digital identities back so that we can manage them responsibly for, for ourselves. So enter Web3 and blockchain. This is a new platform whereby as you go through life, this trail of digital crumbs that you're, you're, you're leaving gets swept up into your self-sovereign identity that you own. Now that would be one of 50 profound opportunities for this technology to impact our lives uh, in very important ways. I'll, I'll just mention uh, one more. This is kind of a big one. You've got, you know, the pandemic has revealed all of these deep problems in our systems and in infrastructures and society. And a big one is supply chain. You know, 
we couldn't in Canada, and this is a problem in the United States six months ago, you couldn't get children's Tylenol mm. for your kid. It wasn't on the shelves. Well, how can this be? This is like 2022, 23. Well, our supply chains are these super complicated things, and they need to be rebuilt around this technology. You know, you got trains and boats and planes and trucks and various parties and uh, borders and escrow agents and authorities and lawyers and intermediaries and tax uh, people. And, and, and all of these are working together serially. There's paper flying around and phone calls and emails and traditional <laughs> systems like EDI and so on. I mean, you know, it's like spaghetti. And what if, what if all of this was a shared network state, a single transparent ledger that everyone could see? You could have a single version of the truth. You could have smart payments through smart contracts. Smart contracts are enabled by this technology and they're just what they sound like. They're, they're contracts, agreements between people made of software. And you deliver something, you get paid, you know? Um, you bring somebody on your show and they charge a fee, they, the show's finished, it's automatic, the, they get paid. And so do you. So um, th th we, we, we could have real-time transactions. You know, there would be no three-day settlement period be between uh, a payment and a settlement where a clearing happens and all these intermediaries because the payment and the settlement would be the same thing. It'd just be an entry to the ledger. So this is going to take a while, but we can rebuild our global supply chains. And that would have an unbelievable impact on prosperity, on the metabolism of global commerce, and on getting stuff to where it ought to be. You know, supply chains are, are the foundation of our economy. They're, if you own it, whatever it is, it came from a supply chain. So that's a second of 50 big opportunities. We could talk about this all day. Um, so, so I'm gonna combine what are the major threats, okay, in the development of yeah. this technology. I'm gonna combine that with the regulatory part of it because I know you have quite strong, strong opinion on that. So in the interest of time, I'm, I'm gonna ask you, all right, what are the threats? What do we need to look out for? And then how do we regulate this, especially considering that it's a technology which seems to be ever-changing, ever-evolving on a day-to-day -day basis? Well, um, if you think about the first era, I mean, when I wrote The Digital Economy, I was very upbeat. 1994, it said the internet, web, stuff's going to be great. I said some things could go wrong. I said, we could lose our, pri I said seven things. I won't go through them all, but we could lose our privacy in an irrevocable way. Check. Check, yeah. Uh, I think the internet will bring us all together, but, because we'll all have access to the same information, but maybe people create their own information. You know, maybe we'll end up in little self-reinforcing echo chambers where the purpose of information is not to inform us, it's to give us comfort. Maybe we'll have a fragmentation of public discourse. Check. Check. Yeah. I said, uh, I, I think the internet will contribute to prosperity for all the middle class. I said, it could go the other way where a small handful capture all the benefits of the internet. We have, we, we have 
growing economies, but the middle class is shrinking. We have wealth creation, but declining prosperity. Well, that's the situation today in many countries, including the U.S. Check. You know, maybe this technology, I think like all other technologies, Schumpeter, creative destruction, you know, it, new technology comes in and breaks down old structures and institutions, but it creates more jobs, more employment, more opportunity. I said, I think that's going to happen, but it could go the other way. This technology could come so fast mm -hmm. that we could see massive structural unemployment. Mm -hmm. But you know, today, the number one job type for men in the United States, 48 states, is truck driver. I think that one's gone in a decade. The number one job type for women is cashier. You know, I was in France recently. I, I bought a bunch of stuff in a clothing store. There was no... I hope no you had uh, some riot gear with you. But yeah, sorry, go on. Oh, yeah. No, I was there a long time before that. But I, I, I came to the checkout area and, and it said, put your clothes in the bin. Then it said, you owe 400 euros. That was it. Um, so, and and this is not just structured work like this sort of traditional blue collar work, but you know AI can analyze X-rays better than radiologists and and dispense uh, drugs better than pharmacists, and so I, I think we're in for a period of very big disruption. And Chad GBT is kind of just a great you know, a, a example of that. I mean, it's it's used today for all kinds of really cool stuff, but, you know, political leaders could use it to spread false information. Exactly. Um, write an essay on why the last U.S. elections were a fraud and uh, write a public figure's confession of marital uh, infidelity. Uh, create a role play between two people discussing how to create a dirty bomb, you know, so uh, on the upside, well, maybe maybe a congressman and presidential candidates can now appear to be sensible. But um, seriously, I mean, who owns the copyright for all this created? Um, the AI, the user of the AI, the AI itself, the the the, the creator of of the the the, the prompt uh, engineer. How will a teacher know whether an essay is original or a music label know whether a composer actually wrote a song? Could an authoritarian state use AI models to keep dossiers on every citizen and, and predict and prevent citizens' actions, like in the minority report? report. Yeah. You know, so... Um, you know, how will this technology affect jobs and, and labor markets? So, I mean... Generative AI is not yet sentient. It doesn't really think. But um, but it learns from the on, online world. And, and, and there's all kinds of bad stuff there. Hate speech, racism, uh, gender bias, abusive writing, false information. And so, you know, how... How can the public interest shape the evolution and control of this technology? And it raises some big issues about what kind of social contract we have in society, what new laws, new institutions, new educations, and, and new behaviors will we require? So this notion of a social contract is for the digital age is one that I've spent a lot of time on. I don't think we'll have time to go into how that social contract would be drawn up or how you 
ensure that certain values, certain morals are, are protected? Uh, because something that genuinely worries me about AI is uh, eventually what it will mean for, for a lot of the human uh, uh, tasks and, 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 and jobs and, and skills uh, uh, moving forward. But um, on the AI subject, um, if you were going, and you've been documenting this for a long time, you've been writing about the evolution of technology and its effect on, on, on business and society for a long time. Let's say we're sitting here in 2033, and just in a snapshot, how could AI be affecting what we're doing now or what our jobs are like now? Well, uh, do you need an in, uh, a human interviewer? I mean, an AI can create a visualization of you. Okay, thanks. Thanks a lot, Don. Really appreciate that. Can, well, I have no, to retire I'm, early. <laughs> yeah, well, no, but here's the thing. It can also create a visualization of you. Yeah. I mean, I wrote I wrote something. The day chat, uh, 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 chat GPT came out, um, I was writing a, a proposal, and I started off using chat GPT, two paragraphs. And then I said, uh, let's look at the above two paragraphs because they weren't written by me. Uh, I asked them to, to write this thing and it was actually to describe a new social contract. Mm. And I said, I asked for three versions. One was an academic version. One was a version like a TED talk. And one was a version in the voice of Don Tapscott. Wow. And the version in my voice sure sounded like me. Now, how can that be? Well, it's read all of my books. It's probably, it's going to watch this interview, probably. Um, it's read everything it's that I've written, I've written online. So, um, you know, pick almost anything. Ultimately, technology will we'll be able to do it better than humans. So it raises some big issues, you know, because... You know, people have asked me, well, how can this technology be used to create a better world? And it certainly can, but but it's not the technology that creates new worlds or, or, or solves problems or causes problems for that point. It's humans and their use of technology. And to me, the second era and all of the stuff that we're talking about um, gives us another kick at the can. It gives us another opportunity that we've kind of failed with the first era to use technology to serve human needs and to help us achieve a better kind of civilization and society. But that's going to create, create uh, that's going to require human uh, beings. We must will it. We must find a way to make this happen because it's the future doesn't just happen. It's achieved, you know. People call me a futurist, and I, I don't really like that. I think the future is not something to be predicted. It's mm -hmm. something to achieve. Okay, final question before we go into the a quick fire. Um, I, I just wanted to uh, touch on something that, that we discussed prior to the recording of this interview, and that was how Silicon Valley was definitely the hub of, of technology and innovation during the first uh, uh, era of the digital age. And you have... Quite, a, quite an interesting prediction of where, where the second era could be based quickly. Well, I don't think it will be based in Silicon Valley. It actually won't be based in one place. But it, it is an interesting issue. Like for every, every city, 
uh, in every country. How do we create the conditions whereby this industry can grow and technology can uh, flourish and we can build a sector? And, um, you know, you need good regulation. And it's and you asked about this earlier. I mean, it's a tough time to be a regulator uh, because, you know, this technology is coming on so fast and 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 you want to ensure that the technology is not used inappropriately and and to protect capital markets and protect citizen rights and so on. But on the other hand, you don't want to uh, you don't want to. Uh, prevent innovation from occurring as well. And getting that balance right is a, is a real challenge and a lot of uh, countries have, have got it wrong. So you need a good regulatory environment, you need to have uh, access to capital, you need good education, you need young people um, because they are obviously uh, the future and the innovators in society. There are a lot of things that are required. So where's this going to occur? Well, um, in North America, I mean, Toronto had a, uh, a pretty good shot at it, but made a lot of mistakes. I mean, the, the most successful business organization in Canadian history was not um, Shopify or or um, a BlackBerry or something. It, it's Ethereum. Ethereum's three times the value of Shopify today. It was created right here, and we drove it out of the country with our regulatory environment. Mm. So... Uh, I just returned from China. Uh, I was involved in creation, creating the uh, or in the launch of something called the Digital Economy Innovation Park. I'm viewed as the father of the digital economy. I'm not really sure how I <laughs> fathered an economy, but anyway, I'd like to know who the mother is. Um, <laughs> but um, but they're throwing ten billion dollars and creating a Silicon Valley overnight, and this is in Chongqing a city that I'd never heard of that has 34 million people. Mm. They're throwing billions of dollars into a dozen different, each into a dozen different locations. But you think about Europe, um, you know, there's some interesting stuff that's happening in um, in uh, uh, Germany. I think Portugal and the current policies of the government to encourage innovation and entrepreneurship to come to Portugal are, are quite exemplary, actually. And there's no reason why Lisbon couldn't become the or a global hub as well. So we're we're in the early days uh, of this. And the football game, you know, we're into the first three minutes. Wow, and that, that is early, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, look, we're going to finish with the quick fire questions. So here's the rules. Sure. One word or one short sentence answers, okay? I've got uh, four questions for you. Uh, and is this obviously drawing from your area of expertise. Um, what is one personality trait a good leader would really benefit from having? Curiosity. Good one. What is the biggest challenge humanity faces today? Um, forging a new social contract for the digital age that includes um, ensuring that we can protect our, um, our environment. If you could change one thing in the world by magic today, what would that be? Um, the attitudes of people about climate change mm. and about the need for interdependence, that we must work together to solve problems 
we have a common interest. Definitely do. And, and finally, what's the most important learning of your career and, and, and life? If you were to sum it up in, in one sentence. About my career, yeah. I would say, uh, don't give up. Uh, just keep going. Um, you're going to fail. Um, you need to keep showing up. You need to keep working. You need to never give up. And um, if you do that, and if you apply good values, um, a sense of uh, responsibility to your work, you can live a principled life of consequence. And that's my hope for all young people today. Don, it's been an absolute pleasure to have an opportunity to uh, uh, speak with you, exchange thoughts, learn from you as well. Continued success uh, uh, to yourself and, and, and to your family. I know your son also does, does great work in this, in this, in this landscape. So uh, uh, I know you'll be coming to Portugal later, later this year. So um, enjoy it. Enjoy it when that happens. Okay. Muito obrigado. It's Not That Simple is a podcast from Fundação Francisco Manuel dos Santos. Tune in every month at ffms.pt or subscribe on the usual platforms. <laughs>